at the end of it, they had this thing and they're like, now what do we do with this? And I'm like, well, I mean, did you gain any insight as a result of doing this process? And he was like, yes, this, this, and this. And I'm like, then that's what you've done with it. It's like the thing itself is not the point. The insights and the questions and the answers and the process, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Hello and welcome to We Make the Internet. My name is Steve Persh. I'm the Director of Technical Marketing here at Pantheon, the platform for extraordinary websites. At Pantheon, we often like to say that website operations is a team sport. And when I say team sport, one image that might come to mind is a basketball coach using a marker to draw up a play. It's a fast and low fidelity way to communicate something of pretty high value. What is the team going to try to do together? What's the play? Keep that image in mind today as we discuss paper prototyping with Marissa Epstein and Greg Dunlap from Lullabot. Lullabot is a strategy, design, and development shop for large-scale publishers. Marissa is a senior user experience strategist, and she recently wrote a blog post on the subject of paper prototyping. I'd highly recommend that to anyone listening to the podcast today. And Greg is the director of strategy at Lullabot. He and I have been crossing paths at open source events for over a decade. Marissa and Greg, welcome to We Make the Internet. Hi, thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. Let's get right into it. Marissa, I've mentioned paper prototyping a few times already. I've hinted that it involves markers, but I haven't given it a proper explanation. What is paper prototyping? Yes, so we don't have to get too fancy with the definition. Paper prototyping consists of anything where you're making something out of paper to try out or communicate an idea. Typically, you are doing this as a part of usability testing. So you're validating a specific idea or hypothesis, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a demo. It can be for lots of other uses. And it sounds like some of the the uses here, we're talking in the world of websites, but even with the world of websites, some of what you might be trying to validate in that testing, it might be perhaps something content related. It might be design decisions. It might be like the user experience of a tool. Could you talk about like the different applications of paper prototyping or how it would change in the context of say, what needs to be on the homepage versus how does this WYSIWYG editor or, or something else need to work? Absolutely. I think that it really can vary. And one of the first steps usually is what are you trying to communicate? So I would make it a little different if I wanted the prototype to be validating a content idea, which would have a lot more detail in the writing and the UX writing on the paper. Whereas if it is just about UI, a lot of times that content and the copy becomes squiggles. I think the most standard variation of paper prototyping that I see is wanting to walk through a user experience with a couple steps, and it's very heavily focused on the UI. So that's the, I would say, think most of them fall into that category. Do I understand what I can do here? What are the options and the functionality on this page? I don't get too into design myself. I want these to feel kind of ugly and far from the finished design product. So maybe that there's more to uncover there. And I really do like that idea of content as well that you'd asked about. So maybe you are trying to understand a message or if things are consistent from step to step. Absolutely. Sure. And for the people listening, could you kind of paint the picture of what this looks like in a room? Greg, I know one thing Lullabot often does is run workshops at the beginning of a project where you're working with any number of internal stakeholders 
what does it look like in the room to have paper and markers? Like, how does that fit into the meeting with your stakeholders? It's pretty cool because it's something that they can instantly understand and relate to. I think that a lot of times, like, I think about the work that we did for the state of Georgia, where we were proposing a system in which they were going to use Drupal's layout builder functionality to embed blocks on a page. And we had provided, you know, a variety of different block types that they could use to build a page. And like for us to then sit them down in front of a computer to test this functionality and verify that we had the block types that they needed would have involved a lot of like training and talking them through it. This is technology they had never seen before. This is technology that was very new in Drupal at the time that we did it. And so we weren't even completely familiar with it. But what we could do is we could take an 11 by 17 sheet of paper, laminate it, and then take index cards and draw out representations of the different types of blocks that we have available and say to them, hey, here's a printout of your homepage. How would you build this again using these different components that we have available to you? And it's very approachable to anybody. Even though they might not quite get the idea of building a website, they can understand this idea of we have index cards and paper and we want to move them around. And then you can start engaging with them. Like you can say, hey, I noticed that over here on the website, you've got an image here, but we don't over here. Is that a problem? Or, you know, like we would like to redo this content in this way. Is that a problem? And they can say, well, what if I wanted to move it over here? And we can say, oh, we can do that. And it's all very like engaging and it doesn't take a lot of technical overhead. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about it is that especially when we're doing work with clients whose authors come from a very wide and broad level of experience and content needs, that this is something that you can really just get going with right away and everybody gets it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Russ, I wonder if, if there were any moments for you where it felt like the work to be done in the room was really aided by paper prototyping. Absolutely. I would say my favorite example of that is using flashcards to represent website components and laying those out together. We can essentially wireframe with a client. And that's probably my favorite one in the room. And I think that, you know, there are many different moments that I could highlight. One of the things I love is that sometimes it's just a pack of printer paper and a couple markers, and that's all that we really need in the room. Sometimes I love it for being able to walk through a concept with a couple people around me. I would say that going back to the example of building a wireframe, there are some really successful moments where we see people begin to use the components that we've described and begin to understand what we're going to build. And I love those moments when they uncover something that isn't there. So in the example of the components in the wireframes, someone asked for a very specific component. And an hour later, we heard the same ask, and it made it very clear that something was missing from our design system. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine those kinds of conversations are often easier to have when you're working at this lower level of fidelity. One thing, Greg, that, that you had touched on was the fact that you might be running a workshop with a very broad set of people with different levels of comfort with technology. I imagine if 
if you don't have the details of fonts and colors and border radius and whatnot, like it's just paper and it's just markers, is that changing what people then focus on? I mean, it definitely can. I'd say that like, in general, there's a problem when we work with stakeholders of them focusing on the things that we don't want them to. And so this does allow us to, you know, direct them to certain places. I mean, the other nice thing about it is that because it's so low impact, like you can do something that's terrible and it doesn't matter, right? Low effort, I mean, because, you know, we can put together one of these workshops and throw together some, you know, index cards. And if they say, no, this is completely awful, then we've wasted a couple of hours of time and it's no big deal. It's not like we've built a gigantic demo site and built out all of the content components and everything for them to try. And then if they hate it, it's like you've burned a ton of work. It's like we can go back to the drawing board and get stuff and you know adjust pretty easily, especially if we're doing it early enough in the project. So, I mean, that's one of the real benefits from our side is that like not only does it interact with the client better, but it's just like the effort involved is so low that it makes it disposable in a way that's really useful. Yeah, and I wonder if we could talk about how this fits in relative to the other aspects or deliverables you might have in a project. It's been a while since I've, a few years since I've been in that role of working at an agency, wireframes and comps and whatnot. Where does a paper prototyping process fit in relative to wireframes or Figma design, whatever tools you're using in addition to paper prototyping? I think the earlier, the better. So we typically start with lowest fidelity. Like Greg had said, see if we're in the ballpark. And if not, we continue until we are. And then refine with higher fidelity in digital wireframes, digital mocks, those kinds of things. So it usually fits in well before design. But sometimes there's sort of a sprint or an agile style discussion around a feature, and that's when it makes sense too. So there are some projects where it just comes in repeatedly. Otherwise, I would say relationship to wireframes, you asked about that, I would say sometimes they are. Sometimes they come before them. On certain projects, I have taken a picture of a hacked together group paper prototype, and that was our wireframe going forward. Could you talk a bit about like, what do you lose when that JPEG is your wireframe relative to something you've built out in another tool? Oh, yeah. It's certainly less refined. So you do not have that level of detail, but it's a question of if that's a good thing. Imagine if you left a big block in a beautiful polished comp that said something will go here soon. That would be alarming for a stakeholder. But to have something like that in the paper prototype, it starts a discussion. It's early. It's a little more understood. And so I do think that it can be really nice for that. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense there. Can we talk a bit about how paper prototyping changes who gets to participate or how they participate in this kind of process? Sure. I would say it does depend. I mentioned earlier, there are kind of two formats that this can take. And so you're talking about the participation aspect. Sometimes it is simpler to say, I have this big stack of paper and I'm going to walk you through it. I want to show you how this layers on top of this and this becomes this. And in that role, they can really just watch and provide feedback. And that is something that can be helpful for stakeholders that are a little more timid to get into the fun workshop mess with us. I do feel that paper prototyping is a little more inviting for them. Like, here's a Sharpie. 
feels way more accessible than here's my Figma prototype link. And that's not something that they're going to feel comfortable editing. So in the other case, I would say when you can, I do really encourage everyone to sketch and add things. Or if they ask, can it do this? I'd love to say, show me. And if that's not comfortable, I will sketch it and ask them if I've gotten it right. But I do really like to break people out into small groups and have maybe one of them be creatively inclined so that they can help if someone is out of their comfort zone. But I find that they usually don't have to. Sure. And what about who gets to participate or how they participate after that session? Greg, I'm wondering what it looks like for the other people who are going to be looped into a project from Lullabot after a subset of the Lullabots fly to the stakeholders' offices, do the workshop. If you're bringing back a paper prototype, what does that look like for the people who weren't there? Usually, I mean, in my experience, and Marissa might have different experience, but it's not like we bring back a prototype. It's like the prototype is a tool to draw out observations. And then once those observations are made, the prototype is done. Like it's disposable. It's not like it becomes a deliverable or anything we pass on to the client. It's more like we kind of write up a report and say, you know, hey, we ran through this exercise with 15 people from your company and you know, 12 of them said this and others did this. And if there's something that's particularly noteworthy, we might take a photo of it to add in or something like that. But the prototype is really just a means to enlightenment rather than something that we deliver in and of itself. Sure. What are some signs or signals either in that session or beforehand that paper prototyping won't be the road to enlightenment? Like it's I imagine this doesn't work in every situation. I think the biggest place where that happens is when you have a set of stakeholders that, and we we encounter this in a lot of different areas, like where you have a set of stakeholders that find it hard to think abstractly, right? And so sometimes you'll get to people and it's like they just can't engage with something outside the context of a designed web page with content on it. You know, it's like they don't know how to translate what in their mind a website is to this abstract conceptual thing over here. And I'd say that is something that presents a challenge fairly often. I definitely see that. And it's a bit of a Achilles heel for me. The client that expects pixel perfection. And it really does change the kinds of deliverables that we produce or artifacts that we create in that engagement. I wonder how this also changes in kind of an all remote world where I imagine for some period of time during the pandemic, the fly to a customer's offices just wasn't on the table as an option. What does it look like if everyone's in a Zoom? Like a circus? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't think we we didn't do any of these, luckily enough, during the pandemic. Like we're kicking off our first major project of that size. We're just about to that we had like most of the stuff that we did during the pandemic, for whatever reason, was sort of of a different tenor. Like we did big projects, but they weren't like we're going to replatform 80 websites in you know a year and a half kind of projects. And we managed to avoid having to do big on-site type workshops remotely. And so we never had to figure it out. And I'm kind of glad. But I mean, we have like internally in our team done some workshops like that. And they're definitely like, they're entertaining for us. Doing them with a client would be less entertaining. But it's like at some point, for instance, like 
you'll have a bunch of sticky notes and somebody will drag one somewhere and then somebody else will drag it somewhere else. And then that person will drag it back. And it's like sticky note wars. And it's like, and it's fun, but it's different. It's very hard to control. I'll also say that one of the things about bringing something like this to an online platform is that you lose the very thing that makes it so accessible to people, right? I was talking to a friend of mine who does a lot of helping people facilitate group exercises. And one of the things that she said was that where for an on-site experience like this, she might do it herself or with another person that she really likes having three people when you're in a workshop like this, because you need one person doing it, one person dealing with like the chat and asking questions and getting the next exercises ready. And one person doing tech support because there's always going to be people who can't figure it out. And especially when we're talking about, again, a very large organization like a state government or something, like their browsers and their laptops and all of that stuff is going to be all over the place. And like, I can't see us getting the same level of feedback and engagement in that setting whatsoever. I will piggyback on that to say it's absolutely possible. There are a ton of products that allow for this. But yes, as Greg said, I think it just requires a lot more work. There's more planning. There's more during. There's more after. I always have to add time for tech problems, which always happen. And there's like someone on an iPad and it's not working for them. There's just so many things that come up. Whereas, yeah, if we walk into a room and it's a post-it, I've never had someone ask me how to use the post-it, but I always have someone ask me how to use the Figma link or the Miro link or the Envision link. Yeah, I was hitting this pain point just this week with a Miro board. Not only did the 10 people in the meeting have wildly different fluencies in Miro, there was some discrepancy as to whether or not like the thing in Miro would be like the finalized artifact of like, yes, this is the description of our process? Or is this Miro board the way in which we are attempting to draw out conversations and questions about the process we are trying to finalize? And it's like, in reality, it was a little bit of both. And in attempting to be both, I think it was worse at both. Yes, I've experienced this pain. And For that reason, I really try to lean towards the latter that you said, I believe, which is just the tool to decide the thing. It is not the thing where the decision lives. We try to document it in a more beautiful way somewhere else and then have it to refer back to. But if it becomes this canonical thing, I find that it can be overwhelming. You know, it's like, oh, the truth is in the mirror board. Where? Right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm concerned that I'm going to be going back to this mirror board in a month and I'll not be able to like load it into my brain fast enough compared if it were something else. I'll also say that I think a lot of people like they have a problem with working on something that they're going to throw away, right? Like we had a discussion recently internally, a group of people had gone through there's like a business development framework that you can use to sort of you know, like contextualize your business, right? And a bunch of people at Blowabot had gone through this and it involves asking questions and answers and stuff like this. And at the end of it, they had this thing and they're like, now what do we do with this? And I'm like, well, I mean, did you gain any insight as a result of doing this process? And he was like, yes, this, this, and this. And I'm like, then that's what you've done with it. It's like the thing itself is not the point. 
the insights and the questions and the answers and the process. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And I think that people like get this thing in their head and mural boards are a great example of this where it's like, okay, we've got this mural board. Now let's turn it into something we can show people. And I'm like, no, let's just throw it away. Like we've gotten what we need to out of it. And I think that in digital products, that is more ingrained because we're used to thinking of things that we build on our computer as stuff that we need to keep. Whereas when we've got a bunch of index cards, it's like, oh, we're not going to do anything with this. This is garbage, right? You know. So I think it more engenders that disposable mentality, which I think in not every case, but in a lot of cases is really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very hard for us to know the difference between what's a disposable digital thing versus something that I need to keep in my Google Drive forever and make it referenceable and, and discoverable. And like, well, no, it's that was just a thing that's now in the trash. Oh, yeah. Especially since keeping things on your computer is so cheap these days. There's just like no benefit to throwing anything away. But there's a huge downside to throwing it away because what if you need it someday, right? And so it's just like we end up with this stack of stuff all over the place. Like every company's Dropbox known to man. Our Dropbox has like folders in it that were created 10 years ago that are just filled with who knows what. But it's like, why would we delete them? There's no benefit to deleting them other than sort of cognitive load, mental space kind of things, you know? Yeah, you know, you could always find someone who just wants to go through like the, a cleansing process and feel better about it. But yeah, you might need to reference that one Drupal 6 project from 2009. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Marissa and Greg here for chatting about paper prototyping. I'm curious, are there any resources you would want to point people to if they want to learn more about paper prototyping? Carolyn Snyder is the author of the book on paper prototyping. So I found that useful. But actually, a lot of my paper prototyping resources have been in doing sketch research or sketch noting resources. So there's some overlap there as well. Great. And uh, I'll recommend again, anyone listening to this podcast episode, check out the blog post over on Lullabot's website that Marissa wrote up. All right, in closing, uh, you know, at Pantheon, we often like to talk about the team sport nature of website operations. Greg and Marissa, it seems like you've worked together a bunch over the years. Are there any behaviors or attributes that you notice in one another as teammates that you would want other teammates to pick up and start doing more? Marissa, what's something that Greg does well as a teammate? Yeah, we definitely have worked together for a while, and I am truly blessed. One of my favorite things about Greg is that he collaborates. So if you can imagine, not every boss that I've ever had is very concerned with my opinion or listens to me as much as they talk. And I think that Greg walked this beautiful balance between expressing his opinion with asking us what we think and engaging us, not in a pushy way, but in a way that makes us all feel included. So I would recommend that everyone make space for others. That's great. And Greg, are there things that Marissa does that you would recommend other teammates start doing more of? I think one of the greatest things about Marissa is that she will always pick up anything that needs to be done on a project. Like, for instance, if we're in a meeting, Marissa is always the one who will say, is anybody taking notes? I'll take notes. And just like grab that thing and go do it. But also in the same way, like if we get to the end of a meeting, I'll often be sort of like, well, that was interesting to talk about. Let's move on to the next thing. Whereas Marissa will very much be, that was interesting to talk about. What are we going to do about it? Like really pushing things into 
action. And I find that very valuable because I live in my brain a lot of the times, but then transforming that into the real world is something that I struggle with. And so always taking that sort of like, let's make this actually really happen somehow is really something that I find really valuable in working with Marissa. That is a super important skill. <laughs> I, 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 have been, I have felt uh, at many points in my career that I either need to bring more of that energy or wish I had someone else uh, in the meeting bringing that energy of like, okay, yeah, that was 10 minutes of interesting conversation. Are we going to do anything <laughs> because we <laughs> right, had that right. 10 minutes of interesting conversation? If not... Why did we talk about it for 10 minutes? Or it was interesting. A whole hour. Great story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Marissa and Greg, for joining us here on We Make the Internet. We'll see you online. Thank You're you. You're welcome so much. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Make the Internet. If you found today's episode helpful or enlightening, please share the link to pantheon.io slash podcast. Share it with a teammate, share it online. Website operations is a team sport. And by sharing what we know, we can grow our sense of team. We can move our industry forward. Special thanks to Jeff Duba, Jeff Large, and Maggie Fisher of Come Alive Creative for podcast production work. You can find them at comealivecreative.com. I'm your host, Steve Hirsch. You can find me just about everywhere online as at Steve Vector. See you on the internet.